I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Rula is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Rula interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at rula.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Rula and this is Rula Conversations. I'm joined today by James Start, Ruler's roving photojournalist. How are you, James? I couldn't be better, Ed. Today is a special day. It's our weekly podcast day. And today, if memory serves, we're not going to just talk about bikes. We're going to talk about bikes and art two of our favourite subjects. We are indeed. Yeah, we always talk cycling in the Rouleau podcast, but we're going to mix art and cycling today and talk about the regular feature in Rouleau magazine called Art Cycle. Art Cycle is a feature, which we carry pretty much every magazine, uh, written by James, which features a work of art which has some link with cycling. It's as simple as that. As I often point out, I'm interested in where cycling overlaps with other areas of interest. And when James suggested in early 2022 that we run a feature on Fernand Léger's piece, Les Loisirs, Hommage à Louis David. I thought that would be an interesting feature. I knew the painting, I like Léger, and there was a link with cycling. So we thought, well, let's run that in Rula 113. And we both had a short list in our heads of possible other pieces which should be linked. So we decided to make Léger the first in a series. The series is still going. We're currently working on the 10th art cycle with hopefully many more to come. So James, what's your memory of pitching that first piece to me and how did you know I was going to say yes? We were standing on a mountaintop. I mean, you know, how, how much more, how more visionary does it get? But it's true. We're up in the Italian Alps and you know, we're just starting to work together and we're throwing around some ideas. And I've always wanted to do a series on on relating the art and the bicycle together because you know we always say oh cycling is art i mean it's kind of a cliche but it's true but art also sometimes is about cycling and and it was a good chance to look at both sides of this and as you know you know I, and and what we learned up on that mountaintop was that both of us actually studied art history so um it gave us a chance to delve into our own studies and our and our own interests in art and cycling. The series so far, there's been no rhyme or reason to the order, has there? We've just done them as they've come up. So um, the first one was uh, Fernand Léger's Les Loisirs Hommage à Louis David, which is a kind of monumental painting, which I think is in the Pompidou Centre in Paris, a kind of 
family with a bike in and Leger's got a very interesting style we'll go into more detail about these later on the next one was Marcel Duchamp one of my favorite artists uh, his sculpture bicycle wheel which is essentially a wheel in a front fork stuck upside down in a stool you'll have to read the feature in order to understand why it works and what it means I've got a piece by Edward Hopper the American artist called French six-day bicycle racer much more literal picture of a racing cyclist at a six-day race. You chose Henri Cartier-Bresson's photograph, Hier France, which uh, I think you're going to talk about in a lot of detail. A lovely balanced photograph of a blurred cyclist riding through. Uh, there was an obscure piece by an artist called Salvo, called Chiclista, a very bright, brightly coloured painting. Uh, René Magritte's State of Grace, which is a characteristically surrealist representation of a, a bike and a cigar by the Belgian artist René Magritte. Pablo Picasso's Bull's Head, which is a sculpture of a bull's head made out of a saddle and a handlebar of a bike. Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec's La Chaine Simpson, which is literally an advert which Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec made um, to advertise a bike chain in the late 19th century. There is a feature about Maurice de Vlamic, the artist who actually took part in the second Paris-Roubaix. And the 10th piece, which you're working on at the moment, is Natalia Goncharova's Cyclist. So that's the list of works. But before we start talking about the actual artworks and the features, James, can you give us a bit of context and background which explains your own interest in art? I was always interested in art and I was I got an art history major in college and then went on for a master's in art history. I always had interest in art. And then when I got to university, I decided to focus on it and I got a degree in art history along with a degree in history. And then I went on for a master's actually in art history at Indiana University. And it just so happens that when I went for that master's, Indiana was a, a great town for cycling. And I took out part of my college loan and actually bought my first racing bike with it. So I was focusing on the art history at the same time I was focusing on bicycle racing. And so I've always had these two passions that have grown together. But it's not every day I get to actually put them together. And it wasn't until, you know, after I came to Rouleur that I finally was able to really focus on them with this uh, with this monthly piece. So yeah, the cycling and art have are, are two things I've been really passionate about for a long time, and I just couldn't be happier that finally with Rouleur, we found a place to bring them together. So it's been pretty great. What about you, Ed? I guess I've always kept these two parts of my life quite separate until now, um, but they do have something in common, and I think that the, the thing they have in common is my interest in art was through a primary school teacher who did a course with us, um, a, I think a group of nine or ten-year-old kids, about Impressionism, and I just instantly got hooked on it. And I know that Impressionism it kind of gets a bit of a bad rap these days for being a bit cliched and a bit obvious and a bit easy, but you've got to remember I was a nine-year-old boy, and at that point I wasn't worried about whether it was cliched to like Impressionism. I just thought Claude Monet was just the most amazing painter, and I, I could gaze at his water lily paintings for... You know, for, for hours and see a lot in them and just enjoy immersing myself in them. I realised I was interested in French art specifically because Impressionism was a French movement. I learned that there were other art movements that came after Impressionism, Post-Impressionism, Cubism, etc. And I just kind of read up on it as a schoolboy and had an interest in it. I realised it was all centred around France, which I was very interested in. So my dad was a French teacher and I developed at a similar age an interest in racing cycling through the Tour de France, which is also French. So though my liking for cycling was to do with 
racing and competitiveness and sport. It was also in France. And with art, my interest was cultural and visual and spiritual, I'd guess, or kind of emotional, but also France. And I found that the you know, France was the common link. And my degree was half French, half art history. So I did a joint Thomas degree, managed to link link the two. And so I just maintained these two kind of parallel interests, which each had a foot in the same subject, which was France, and both infinitely fascinating. When the opportunity came up to run features about this in the magazine, many years after I was a primary school kid, I embraced it. And I think it's been a really interesting series. So let's talk about a few of the paintings. What I'll do, I'm going to put a few links to images in the show notes. They're all fairly fairly famous ones so I'll put those in the show notes and if you're listening to this I recommend having a look at the painting so you can see what we're talking about although hopefully we can paint a visual picture with our words also so James I think the best thing to do is probably as as this is your baby for you to tell us about your favorite three or four art cycle pieces and you know use that to stimulate our readers interest in maybe looking further I love them all. So coming down to three or four is not easy. I'll take a couple of them that I think are kind of representative of the, the, the scope that we've been working on. Because one of the great things is, is about this, it gives me a chance to kind of go back over and rediscover old certain painters, but also to discover painters I've never ever seen before. So I'm learning as I go as well. And being able to share that with uh, the readers at, at Rural is just tremendous. But, you know, it all started with uh, Fernand Leger. I had to come up with a starting point. That was the one I pitched. Because, well, yeah, every time I go to the Pompidou Center, and I live in Paris, so I go to the Pompidou Center a couple times a year when I'm just looking for a little inspiration. I just It's one of my favorite museums in the world. It's a modern museum, but great big walls and lots of natural light, and um, it's a really exciting place to go study art or just to you know gaze at it. Every time I would go, I'd be reminded of this wall that was this entire painting by Leger, the Le Loisir, I always kind of thought of it as a déjeuner sur l'herbe, as a uh, takeoff on uh, Seurat's painting, even though uh, Seurat's pointless painting, even though it was much more, I thought, related to maybe Manet or something, whatever. But the whole idea of lunch on the uh, on the lawns somewhere is such a recurring motif in, in, in French 19th century painting. And this was uh, Léger's 20th century update of that with his sort of cubist or what they called his tubist style of cubism. And Leger is interesting because he, he reduces his figures to these sort of tube-like figures. Think about, say, uh, the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz. And a lot of his figures have these sort of like tube-like arms and stuff. And so it's just sort of the bicycle with its down tubes and its front and rear triangles and its fork. I mean, it just fit in perfectly to this. And I thought, wow, that's a really cool extension of this motif or this theme of you know lunch on the gardens and whatnot, and he expands it to leisure. But I just I, I just love that. Now the one irony about this was that when I went back to actually look at it with the idea that I was going to write a piece on it, it was no longer hanging on the wall. <laughs> and so I like I did like contact the Pompidou Center and try to get a you know good reproduction of it so I could use that, and that's what we 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 went off for. And I learned that there was actually. He'd done several of these. Some are more in red, some are more in blue, but it wasn't it wasn't just a one off for him. It was, it was really interesting. So that was that was that was a starting point that was really great. You've raised some really interesting points. For me, this painting, I I know this painting. I've been to the Pompidou Centre and it, it caught my eye as well on the occasions when I went there. It was there when you showed up then. You were lucky. 
<laughs> yeah, this, this, this is quite a while ago we're talking. But the first thing I'd say about it is it's incredibly visually striking. The colours are very... It's very primary colours. There's blues, yellows, reds, orange. It's, it's very blocky as well. It's not... The, the, the colours aren't mixed in or subtle. It's very primary colours, very bright, blocky colours. It's pleasant to look at, isn't it? It's, it's just visually... The colours kind of make me happy and they're bright and they make me feel like it's a nice day. Uh, and then secondly, the, the figures which you talked about, they're obviously a specific family maybe or a specific group of people. But like you say, he reduces the features and body shapes to quite universal shapes. So although this is a specific family or maybe a specific group of people, it also represents everybody. And that gets into what you're talking about with leisure. Because, like you said, in the late 19th century, leisure became a thing. Like, people didn't really have leisure through much of human history. They're so busy staying alive or working or just being too busy with life's challenges and essentials to go and hang out somewhere. And then, like, late 19th century Paris, I think people got a bit richer. There was an interregnum between various wars as well. So people were maybe a bit more optimistic and there was peace and they had the chance to go and hang around and people used to go to the parks and hang out in Paris didn't they and that's where Manet's painting Le Déjeuner sur l'herbe which you talked about it's about that Parisian activity of going and doing nothing which was totally new absolutely and one thing I like about Léger is yeah, even though he's got these sort of metallic like we call it tubist forms the colors make it very very light it's not like a somber sort of Cubism, like say Picasso, which is very monochromatic, often, right? His is very festive, actually. It's it's with all these colors and stuff, and very playful, and that fit in very well with the theme because you know leisure is supposed to be rather light. You know, it's that time to put the stress behind you of of the working week and whatever. I've always loved Leger, um, his work and his his playfulness and his creativity. He's just a a pure artist and one, you know, really one of the greats from that time in history. And he had a long career, to be honest with you. It was, it was really a very rich and long career. And he was just all kinds of full of ideas. But this was really one of his first masterpieces. And it included something we all love, which is a bicycle. That's a reference to leisure as well, isn't it? Because in the 20th century, I guess bicycles are very utilitarian, but they're also, they are fun to ride, aren't they? They, 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 they are a symbol of maybe having the opportunity to spend time at leisure going out and enjoying the fresh air and countryside. Well, that's one of the fascinating things about this when you see a art cycle as a series, because almost since the bicycle came into existence, it was practiced and, and manifested in different ways. Almost instantly, you know, very, very shortly after the invention of the bicycle, at least with, say, with chain, we had competition. Then it was, yes, a product of, of leisure, especially for the wealthy. And then as it became more mass produced, just a product of transportation uh, for everybody. And so within a couple of decades, the bicycle was, was just being exploited and used in so many different ways. And the different paintings or, or drawings or photographs that we see, we're often seeing how the bicycle is being used differently in a part of society, which has been really interesting. And it's called homage to... Louis David. Who's Louis David? Louis David was a uh, more of a classical French painter, a real academician, and one of the great masters of the 
you know, you go to the Louvre, you don't go to the Pompidou Center to see David, you go to the Louvre and you see these rooms of just these massive paintings, you know, with often very heroic poses and the historical paintings of war and, 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 and battles and things like that. So uh, to be honest, every time I looked at that, that painting, David was not what came to mind, even though it's explicitly in the title. I instantly was associating it with Edouard Manet, with his Déjeuner sur l'herbe. So in reality, even though it was explicitly stated, homage to David, I was not associating with with him or his paintings. I was looking at it as, you know, uh, Déjeuner sur l'herbe from Edouard Manet, uh, Georges Seurat, and and all these people who have painted more actual leisure uh, scenes frequently like this. But just a timeless theme in this in 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 the past century or so and one that was updated marvelously by uh, Leger. Yeah. And I think the main thing about this painting is uh, the first part of the title is Les Loisirs which is leisure and this painting does make me want to go and hang out with friends with bikes and just enjoy that very activity you know there's nothing more complicated than that but the painting makes me want to do that. I think it's really inspiring. Uh so that was the first in the series, James, and that, that kicked off the whole thing. Which other works have really stuck with you? One of them, I would say, would be Cartier-Bresson's photograph um, of the cyclist uh, going down this uh, narrow street in a southern town of France. With, and, just, and you just see the blur of the cyclist. And there are moments in your life where you can remember where you were standing when you saw something for the first time or where, where you heard a song for the first time or, or whatever it may be, right? And this photograph was one of those. I was we were we had access to the archives at the university, and we were looking at some of the fine arts prints in one of my first photo classes. And this came up, and I said, "Wow, that's it." I mean, if I can, if I ever can buy a Cartier-Bresson, that is the one it's going to be, because it had everything that I loved about Cartier-Bresson's photography and cycling. And I thought he just captured it all so well. It was Cartier-Bresson, you know, was the, the artist, uh, the photographer who coined the term, the decisive moment. And this, this actual photograph has often been used to illustrate that because the geometry, the descending staircase, it's, uh, that, that kind of mirrors the descending road. And just as the, you see this little corner of the road in the photograph, there's this, it's all animated, brought to life by this, the blur of the cyclist descending the road. And photographically, it's just so stunning in terms of composition and in, in, in terms of his, his choice to have a blurred cyclist rather than, say, a, a static cyclist. I mean, these are choices a photographer makes every day they're photographing. And he does it here so brilliantly. And the, all of the poetry that, that Cartier-Bresson was capable of creating with a black and white photograph are inherent in this picture. So that is an image that's really dear to me that... that marked me when, as when I was in my formative years, both as a bicycle racer and a photographer, and one that holds the test of time. And it's just a stunning, stunning, stunning piece of work. I love the composition of it because it, it's very, very tight in. There's no, there's no sky involved. It's just buildings, roads, and street furniture, basically. And it's so sharp with the lines of the railings and the stairs, which kind of take your eye around and into the picture. The curve of the road in the background kind of takes your eye across the whole photograph and then it would probably be quite unmemorable but for that blurred cyclist he's perfectly played that cyclist i presume it's a he um it may may be a she that the cyclist is perfectly positioned in that gap created by the road and the 
stairwell. Um, but you talked about the decisive moment. Can you tell us a bit more about that and what it means for a photographer? It's something that we've all studied. And it's something that's very close to my heart and something I've never, ever forgotten. Basically, Cartier Bristol looks at the world as a stage. And his frame is the, the theater's stage, right? And he constructs that stage by assembling, putting together a composition, which he's finding in daily life in the streets, that is very well balanced. And then often it's just accentuated by this moment. This, all of a sudden, this, this picture of perfect balance is animated and brought to life by this fleeting moment that, that, that is just happens to be crossing through the stage. It's something that, I'll be honest with you, I've gone back to time and again. I did, I've did. i done a book of street photography, I actually did two, and I was constantly thinking, okay, what is my stage here? And then looking for somebody or some something to happen in there that would be interesting and ironic and, and maybe humorous. I do it so often in, in cycling photography. I, I find a landscape and then I just, I said, this is going to be a great stage for the cyclist. And I wait for the, the bike race to come through and animate it. And it's something that I've gone back to, I, don't, I really don't know how many times. It's a whole sense of composition, a whole sense of your photographic frame. A picture is a whole entire rectangle or square being of the format you're using. A photographic frame it's not just one person doing something in a picture that would be a, a very one end elemental photograph but it's really your the photographer's use of the entire frame as space being what other objects are in there or is there just a sense of negative space that's deliberately put in part of the, the frame to balance it out these things are are, are just inherent to to composition photo be it photographic or, or anything else really and you mentioned negative space you might have to explain that well just you know let's just say a space where you you okay you say all right there's really nothing happening there it might just be sky for example there might, there's not anything really jumping out of, of your eye but it allows for a certain balance with whatever action or moment that you are catching it sort of allows to concentrate your the viewer's attention to what is happening and if the frame was, say, perhaps too busy and had too many things happening in it, uh, it, it might take your attention away from that, from the, the main thing. So it's a constant push and pull and, and trying to figure out what can I include in this rectangular frame that's going to enhance the main subject or is sometimes nothing uh, going to be better? Is it just a nice, clean, clear background? For example, and that's my, my very, very rough explanation. And in trying to replicate that, decisive moments that Henri Cartier-Bresson talked about in your cycling photography. Can you ever know that the decisive moment is about to happen or is it something you can only know once it's happened? There's been several images that I've taken over the years where you get a little bit lucky. I mean, you can't get lucky if you haven't set it all up. You kind of, you know, sometimes you set up that great decisive moment and the moment itself isn't that great. So you say, okay, well, you got a nice, well-balanced picture. It might illustrate this or that, but not going to submit it to the awards at the end of the year or something like that. And sometimes it all comes together and you can see it. The light's right. The crowd intensity is great. And the rider comes in right where you want it. And it's just great. And sometimes you can predict everything and and, and you get it right. And then there's just sometimes where it's a pleasant surprise. Um, one of the pictures I've been best known for, uh, won several awards, was a picture of the old wind turbines in northern France. It was during Paris-Nice. And I was just out ahead of the race, and I saw this field of wind turbines lined up just kind of perfectly. There was nothing blocking them. It was just this beautiful flat road. 
I said, that's it. And I stopped my driver and we found the perspective. And we waited there for 45 minutes. We were a lot further ahead than I thought. But the, it turns out what I was expecting was to see, I was like, and what's going to happen here is the riders are going to come through in a perfect Indian file strung across underneath, right? Wrong. The riders weren't racing. And that's why I had to wait for so long. They were just putzing along in this huddled pack. And at first I was like, ah, oh, geez, that was my shot. But they were, at the end, when I clicked it, they were so perfectly combined together in the bottom right-hand corner that it was the perfect juxtaposition with these, these turbines in the upper left-hand corner. And they, it was, there was this uncanny balance. I could never have expected to, to get that good. And you know, even today, it, probably the best picture I've ever taken. And, and it, was, it was something that I set up, you know, I, I had in my head a decisive moment that was nothing like what actually happened. Yeah, I will put that picture in the show notes as well, James. It's an amazing photograph. I think the, the fact that three of the wind turbines and the, the, the sails are aligned so that it looks like they're all going the same, and then one's slightly off from the others, and that, that creates a balance and a distance which kind of makes the whole picture perfect. But yeah, I, I guess that decisive moment, I assume you can't always plan for it and then but but on the other hand when it has happened you you definitely know about it yeah this and this goes back to like the days when i was shooting in film and i would go out i would go down the streets of paris or anywhere in my travels and i would have say six rolls of film right and i wouldn't come back until they're all gone that's six six times 36 you can do the the math and if i could come up with one really strong picture out of a roll i was having a good day if i came up with one out of those six rolls that's still a good day you're out there and you're you're constantly trying things you're waiting for things you see a scene you wait you shoot around it you do six seven frames and sometimes things come together sometimes they don't but you know very often the pictures when you then go back and look at your images there's a lot of images that you're like ah, that's a lot better than i thought it was going to be i wasn't expecting that and i got that so i mean that that's what makes photography for me endlessly magic and it's never a given and it's something that keeps me pushing and still trying to come up with my best work today and you know i'm it doesn't maybe happen with the same frequency did a few years ago but there's still every year a picture i see i'm really proud of that i've never taken before and as long as i can say that I'm going to keep taking pictures. The other interesting thing about the Cartier Bresson show is that just the geographical sense for me. It's it's called Hier, France, and Hier is a town down in uh, Provence, which which I love, and that, it, you know, it makes me think of that as well. So, yeah, love that photo. I was really glad you chose that for Art Cycle. I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Rouleur, the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Our latest edition... Out now is Rouleau 122, the travel edition. You could argue that every edition of Rouleau is a travel edition. After all, the bike is a tool for both physical journeys, from A to B, and also emotional and metaphorical journeys on which we find ourselves. At Rouleau, we have always been about celebrating where the bike can take us. But this edition of the magazine is a deep dive into the human urge to explore. Rulo 122 features Richard Abraham's amazing feature, The Road, which is about a secret place in the mountains. A real road, but well off the beaten track. It's not the highest, hardest, or most epic road. But as Richard reveals, 
it may be the perfect road, a pure riding experience, a perfect riding experience, the kind of road you can lose yourself on. Read the magazine and you might be able to work out where it is, but that doesn't matter. The important thing is to get that experience wherever you can find it. Also in Rouleau 122, an exclusive interview and shoot at home in the Canadian prairies with Paris-Roubaix winner Alison Jackson. Exploring abandoned places in Sardinia, Moulin and the overlooked place of the world, up the peak du Midou du Bigor, an interview with Tigrayan cyclist Negasi Hailu Abreha, gravel riding in Sri Lanka, Finland gravel with Valtteri Bottas, Andrea Taffy's Agriturismo, Timo Mani, art cycle with Morris de Vlamink, Techno Gym, Vittoria, three Explore features, and much, much more. Ruler is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture, and Ruler 122 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to ruler.cc, hit the subscribe button, and enter the code PODCAST15, PODCAST15, to get 15% off our regular subscription price. And now, back to the show. Any more that have really stood out for you? Well, I love that picture by the Italian artist Salvo. It's a modern uh, painting by, by relative standards. I think it was done in the 1980s. And I was looking for something rather Italian to go, I believe, in our Giro d'Italia um, special. And I wasn't coming up with much. And I, I reached out to my friend Antonio Colombo, who, who's the um, family uh, heir to Columbus Tubes and then the owner of Cinelli. And has, for the last 25 years had a contemporary art gallery. He collects paintings. He bought one of some of the first Keith Herrings when they at the first show in, in Italy in the 1980s and has a fabulous collection of, of work. And like myself and like you, he's very passionate about the bicycle in art. I said, so, you know, what, Antonio, looking for something kind of Italian here. And he gave me a couple of uh, things. And uh, this one just jumped out at me. There's a sort of neoclassical sense or almost renaissance sense of the background it's a very bright colors but the way they treat form and stuff is almost like the renaissance landscapes and then you have this sort of this very muscular racing cyclist in what looks to be like almost a track bike just this very stripped down bike of pure form and speed it just spoke to me on a lot of levels and i discovered a new artist here and was able to um, really research and delve into his work and share that with the readers which is just really fun this is the most literal painting of a cyclist that we've we've had in the series isn't it it, it is a painting of cyclists you can it's recognizably somebody out training or racing maybe there's no kind of sense of surrealism it's just a picture of a cyclist but on the other hand it's not quite naturalistic is it like the colors are very bright he looks quite aero and quite quite hench i mean he he's He's a strong cyclist. He's not a climber. Marco Pantani, he is not. Not, not a climber. <laughs> and also got a very unusual geometry on the bike. And you, you often find artists do this, don't they? They they change the geometry of people or objects to make the balance of the picture better. Paul Cezanne used to do this. There's a famous painting by Paul Cezanne of a boy. His arm would be about five foot long, but the balance actually works with that. It, or the, the, that long arm makes the painting balanced and work in a kind of visual sense so this this painting it works in a very visual sense even though a classical frame maker might say that this is not a bike that you would actually be able to ride very fast no i don't think it is that's what we call artistic license i guess but yeah there's a lot of things happening i love the colors he uses the sense of space there's a, a certain stillness like it's the, the space is almost in a vacuum it seems like without air almost like say to kiriko 
um, or something like that, um, if memory serves me here. His use of space and landscape and all is very unique and very formalized, I guess you would say. Even though the cyclist is, it's, it's sort of literal. Um, we can actually see a face here and all. It's not. It's, it's, it's out of time. You just mentioned Di Chirico and Giorgio Di Chirico is an Italian artist in the, around the maybe 1920s, early part of the 20th century, who painted these Renaissance looking townscapes completely empty of people apart from you you might see a shadow they're very light but at the same time they're quite threatening because of the kind of eerie atmosphere and the emptiness this painting on the other hand it has that kind of sense of stillness of dear kiriko i don't i don't find it threatening though i, I think the, the bright colors are quite they look quite nice I, I i i think this is quite accessible it makes me it's quite warm it makes me feel like that's quite a nice place to be that place wherever that cyclist is riding might not exist as a real place, but I'd certainly quite like to ride my bike there. I think we we should go find it out, search it out, and we shouldn't come back until we found it, Ed. Depending on those of an orange road with a bright yellow sky, um, that's that's where this one... But this painting, although it's the most literal painting of a cyclist that we've had, um, the artist isn't well known. We've had works by Duchamp, Magritte and Picasso, maybe the three most influential artists of the entire... 20th century whereas salvo i'd never heard of him before you put this in the series neither had i but we can thank antonio colombo for that but we study art to learn and this series has given me the chance to learn more about this this little niche this little microcosm or this you know this very small part of the world of art and it's just a ton of fun to do that and i'm you know and and the more i do it the more we talk to people about it i get people emailing me oh yeah do you think about this one oh have you done that one yet and the list is much longer than I would have ever imagined. And it's still growing. So, I, you know, for all of those who appreciate Art Cycle, I think we're going to be able to continue this for maybe another year at least. The current edition of Ruler, number 122, is out now. And the Art Cycle feature in that one is slightly different from the others. It's, it's not focused around a specific work. It's focused around a specific artist. Uh, so... Morris de Vlamic was that artist. Tell, tell us a bit about Morris de Vlamic, James. He was a, an amazing uh, artist. You know, he's pretty much self-taught. His first passion was bicycle racing, and he had a license, and he did all of the velodrome races in Paris. You, know, you have to remember at the turn of the century, going into the 20th century, the biggest races were on the velodromes, and then Paris had several of them. And you can make a lot more money racing on the track than, than on the road. I mean, races like Paris-Roubaix, which are considered legends today, were only just beginning, and they were almost experiments. Um, the Tour de France didn't even exist at the end of the 19th century, right? We had to wait till 1903. So he was an avid racer, but he also really loved going on the long-distance rides and races and stuff like that. So the Paris-Roubaix was a race that did speak to him, and when it happened the first year, he took note and he signed up for it, uh, he actually had a professional racing license, although probably more of a sort of independent uh, license. And he actually started the second Perry Roubaix. And I went back uh, to my Perry Roubaix, Roubaix expert, uh, Pascal Sargent, who, who saw his first Perry Roubaix when Felice Gimondi won and has gone is, is, has written, I don't know how many books about it, has an amazing collection of Perry roubaix memorabilia. And I said, so de Vlamanc, he wrote this. I said, oh, I don't think so. Well, he went in and found the original start list and said, you're right, Maurice de Vlamanc started the second edition of Perry roubaix And then he had a bad accident at one point, I believe, or got, no, he got, actually uh, was, was sick uh, and it kind of threw his career upside down. And 
he was starting to paint and basically I think within a matter of a small amount of time decided to throw himself into painting with the same amount of energy and he was a very physical painter. Um, he was considered one of the founders of fauvism, the, what is often considered the first modern art movement of the 20th century, along with André Durand, which was a friend of his, and then later uh, Henri Matisse, who was an early proponent of fauvism. And fauvism was, I forget how we translate it exactly, but it was kind of the wild ones, if you want. And they, they were described as this for their wild, very abstract sense of color. A face could be green, um, a sky could be orange or, or purple or whatever. They do it all over the place with color, totally disassociated with color with its real light or as sort of natural inherent associations real movers and shakers uh, towards abstraction as a result of that and he was one of the founders of this and had a very long and successful career and is considered a true master of the 20th century painting i'd love the bright colors they just you know they're they're happy places fauvist paintings there's a lovely painting in this month's ruler um, the travel issue number 122 and I actually had a postcard of this very artwork on my wall when I was a university student I love it it's very brightly coloured townscape French town uh, in Bourguival I think so if our readers are inspired by this series to go and look further into the world of art and it's a it's a huge rabbit hole that you'll probably never come out of irrespective of whether it's anything to cycling James which kind of artists or art movements would you recommend people look into or even just your own favorites that you feel people might be interested in well indeed it's a rabbit hole but it's a rabbit hole you actually never want to come out of i've always been a big fan of the 20th century i love so many of the movements like starting with the fauves but um you know i mean like going back we we touched uh during the tour de france issue we did uh this advertisement for this chain by Toulouse-Lautrec and it gave me a chance to go back into his work uh which is just you know really before the 20th century where he's doing his greatest work. And his sense of color was so amazing and so expressive and over the top. I always have an affinity to very expressive artists, be it the Fauves, be it the Austrian expressionists, uh, like Egon Schiel, I love, be it Jackson Pollock. I mean, I just, uh, I love art that just goes out of the box. Describe a, a Jackson, a typical Jackson Pollock painting to to the listeners, just to make sure they they know what they're getting themselves into. Jackson Pollock was a sort of action painter, and just threw splashes of paint, basically. Uh, from I do believe that he used most of the time a brush, but he would just dip the brush into his paint can and then just whip it onto the painting and it created this sort of abstract, very, very abstract canvas. And I remember my first reaction to it, studying studying Pollock when it came up, I got in my, in my art history classes, that's not art, anybody could do that, you know? And then I realized I was really starting to, to get art on a different level when I understood what and why a painting like that was significant. And some of it has to do with its place in time and history and coming right after that you know, such such a a violent, abstract, chaotic reaction to painting, just after World War Two, was some, in some ways the only response artists could have at the time. But it's also an evolution of art at that time. I mean, art had been going further and further towards total abstraction. His was not the first case of that, but it was a, a very good case of that, and one that you know is 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 considered in many ways a sort of masterpiece of total abstraction. So it's really, really, really fascinating and interesting to study. I tend to prefer art where there is some touch of reality 
in there, some touch of reality that we see. And then I really love the way the artists will take the real world and make it their own through abstraction. I can swim in the sea of total abstraction like Jackson Pollock, but I personally tend to prefer a painting that has at least one foot, at least one toe in the real world. Yeah, interesting things about Jackson Pollock, those drip paintings that you talk about, they're very big and very immersive. So when you approach one of them, it overwhelms you. It's so big, it fills your field of vision. So they're very effective. Uh, also, not easy to do. We we tried in um, my art history class with the assertion that anybody could do that. Actually, not true. It's really, really difficult to do it the way he did it. And the other interesting thing, he laid his canvases flat on the floor to paint, and he walked around the canvas. He was in the painting. He said that, like to make his paintings you need to be inside them mostly paintings are separate you know it's it's opposite you and your arm is making the painting movements he was inside the painting and that's helps you understand how overwhelming they are and how how much that you need to have your field of vision filled by them but yeah i love that i mean personally speaking i would recommend probably a bit more esoteric than you i i love marcel duchamp who's been in art cycle james uh, i love his piece the large glass which is in the philadelphia museum famous for being the steps which rocky ran up and yes i did do that when i went there but also it's the home of an amazing piece of work made of panes of glass stuck together with the the work is in between them and it can never be moved it's too fragile to move but it looks a bit weird a bit odd and it's only when you start reading about the different elements in the work that you start to understand how it's put together. There's a lot of chants in there, a lot of literary references and some ways of making art which were totally revolutionary. Marcel Duchamp was, I think, the most influential artist, to my mind, of the 20th century. And also, he did the very, very stylish thing of basically giving up art after he finished The Large Glass and devoted his life to chess, which is entirely admirable in my book. But I'll also say I'm into the British artist called Richard Long. I got very interested in a, an art movement called the Land Artists. And I think this has something to do with my interest in cycling, because my interest in cycling is to be out in the landscape. I love mountainous landscapes. I love being out in the countryside and looking at the scenery. And I always think I don't much like landscape painting. I find that it's not as good as a landscape. But Richard Long makes art out of the landscape he'll go for a walk and photograph the footsteps or record his impressions at different parts of the walk and that's the artwork and I very much feel an affinity with my experience of cycling and what Richard Long does with art and interestingly very big overlap with the world of cycling Richard Long made a painting on the road on Box Hill in advance of the 2012 Olympic Games. Not much publicity was made about this, but I, I saw it and clocked it. I th thought, that's Richard Long. And I think the London organisers had paid him a fee to create an artwork. And it was on the coverage of the Olympic road race as they rode up Box Hill every time. And they, they rode over a painting by Richard Long. And I, d I don't think anyone really mentioned it. It's probably worn out by now, you know, it, it won't have lasted. But Richard Long very much recommend having a look into his work and I, I love you know, 20th century American art you know, Mark Rothko abstract expressionist like Jackson Pollock but very different very meditative contemplative 
colour-based immersive paintings and Jasper Johns who's a pop artist so I love all that kind of stuff I'd, yeah I, I can talk about this for forever one thing was interesting was uh you know I wanted to do Keith Haring because he he was so involved in the the bicycle messenger movement and he was always taking these things out of real life and making them his own but he never did a bicycle as a motif. I was like, what, wait a minute. He was like decorating bike shops in Manhattan and it was all over the whole messenger movement. And yet he never actually did a bike himself. Although he did paint the disc wheels of one of Antonio Colombo's uh, Cinelli lasers once in exchange for a Cinelli mountain bike. But that's about as close as it came. It just, but yes, I mean, it's it talk about, just cycling and art is a rabbit hole of its own that we are far from exhausted. Yeah. And so we've had some good feedback from some of our readers about art cycling. A few have got in touch to make suggestions, some of which we were on our list already, others which have opened our eyes to new artists we can have a look at. So thanks for those. If you are interested in the overlap between cycling and art, or even cycling any other pursuit, just get in touch and we'll see if we can give it some coverage. That's all for Ruler Conversations this week. Thank you very much, James, for your input. Couldn't have had more fun. And there'll be more art cycle pieces, one coming up uh, in the next mag, which we're working on now, and then many more to come in the next year, at least. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Ruler Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Ruler Magazine. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Ruler, and on Instagram at Ruler Magazine, or visit our website at ruler.cc. This edition of Ruler Conversations was produced by Joseph Perry of Content is Queen. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.